welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Furniture Today's On the Record podcast, brought to you by Klausner Home Furnishings. If you need to know what's happening in the furniture industry, why it's happening, and what comes next, tune in to On the Record for expert analysis and open, honest conversation. Now, here's your host, Bill McLaughlin. Welcome to On the Record. I'm Bill McLaughlin with Furniture Today. My guest this week is Jordan England of Industry West. Um, Jordan and Industry West are a somewhat unusual company in that uh, they are an e-commerce company that is now and has always been profitable. And that's something that uh, people talk about in the e-commerce space. Jordan, I'd like to kind of start there. That has been your goal from day one. You have focused very strongly on profitability, have you not? We, we certainly have. And Bill, thanks a lot for having, yes. having me on. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, but we have, and I think in some ways, like um, from from the early days, it was out of necessity. Um, we've taken uh, an unconventional path uh, in terms of you know not raising money and going out and having a, a business plan and uh, you know doing the things more traditionally speaking. Uh, at least it seems like that's been the way the last decade for you know other D 2 C brands. But um, but we have we have focused on profitability and uh, we continue to do so. And it just so happens that. Uh, it's kind of in vogue these days, this last few months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. See that? You were way ahead of the curve. Way ahead right, of the yeah. What a novel concept. But yeah, um, but yeah we, we, we've always focused on it. Um, for folks who may not be as familiar with Industry West, um, just give, a, give us a little background on kind of how you got started and what your model is so, so people can sure. kind of have an idea. So we are a, um, a digital first brand um, that started about 11 years ago. Um, like a lot of these stories have the same kind of narrative. Uh, it was my wife and I looking for some furniture for our home, couldn't find products that, um, were existing in the marketplace when we were living in a, a small coastal town in South Carolina, Beaver, South Carolina, and, um, started researching manufacturing and, um, found a few, uh, facilities, uh, overseas and were able to kind of source some, some product and, um, really quickly learned that maybe other people might be interested in this as well. And just kind of the genesis of the company kind of came around that uh, initial kind of experiment, so to speak. Um, and it happened to be at a time where uh, I was living in a, like I said, a kind of a smaller town and um, didn't have a, a huge, I'm not, I don't have a business background. I'm actually a history and political science major um, in, in school and I had been in the real estate business and um, just, just put up an eBay auction and found that there was a lot of people interested in what we had to offer and launched a, a website um, very much um, bootstrapped and um, kind of things kind of spiraled from there and uh, have just kind of continued to grow for the last 11 years. I'm, uh, I'm, that's kind of how things got started. I'm always curious uh, because that origin story seems very prevalent. Um, it if, is. It's, it gets a little boring because it's the same thing. But uh, well, it, no. It, I mean, I'm curious. True. If if you couldn't find frying pans, would you be a housewares uh, startup? What is it about furniture? Um, because it's you know obviously part of it is not finding what you want and having to go get it. But there also, I would think, has to be some predisposition. You you seem to have a kind of 
um, interest in design. I've, I've heard you talk in other forums about, you know, reading design publications and those kinds of things. Were you, did you have some kind of predisposition that you were, you know, a little more interested in furniture than, say, again, yeah, frying pans? You know, probably interior design. And I mean, I always love picking up, a, you know, an Eldecor or architectural digest and thumbing through the pages and um, feeling inspired or, or traveling and, and being in spaces that um, evoke a feeling or, um, you know, kind of transform experiences. And I think for me, that's one of the things that why it was so interesting from the beginning is that I think we all kind of enjoy or, or a lot of people do, you know, being in a space um, that gives you a feeling or that is, so to speak, beautiful. Um, and so we've always tried to kind of focus on products and ranges and collections and things that um, help people furnish their spaces beautifully, whether mm -hmm. it's their home or their office or, or their restaurant or wh whatever it may be. Um, but I do think that that's what furniture does. It's maybe different than uh, than a frying pan. Well, I guess you could cook a beautiful meal there. But <laughs> <laughs> if if you uh, if you have the skills, yeah, that's uh, right. Right. Um, it's interesting the timing, two thousand and nine. I mean, and I think that's interesting in two ways. One that seems very fortuitous, and one that seems almost counterintuitive. I mean, 2009, you are ahead of the D2C curve. There's not as many online players in the furniture space. So you have that uh, space a little bit to yourself. But by the same token, you also have uh, a, a great recession that really hurt a lot of the rest of the furniture business, right? Real estate kind of collapsed. Do you think in some ways that's fortuitous that you did not need scale at the start so you were able to not be hurt by that? I mean, tell me a little bit of how you think... Um, how that played in the time. Yeah, I think played. that had a lot to do with it. I think had we gone out and tried to to raise uh, capital at that point in time, I think it would have been incredibly challenging. If not, it, it wouldn't have been possible. But you know what became really part of our DNA early on was certainly that um, adherence towards being more principled around how we spend our limited resources, um, and you know it, it forces to kind of not. It gave us a lot when, when it was just just me. I mean, I've done every part of this business from unloaded containers to shipping labels to you know customer service, all of it. It was just it was just me um, in, the, in the very early days for the first goodness first year year and a half. Um, and you know when you when you start that way and you think about things more conservatively, so to speak, I think it does have an effect on on how you kind of operate um, in in the future and how you kind of create the business around those those principles. I also have quite a, a I would also say not, not a lot of aversion to risk. So that has been part of it as well as kind of calculated risk taking. Um, but but yeah, I, I do think that when we started the, the business and during that recession, um, we had to do things in a calculated manner and we've just, we've grown slowly. I mean, it's over 11 years mentioned being being profitable um, all along the path, but it's it's taken, um, it's taken you know, a lot of principled uh, direction around how, how we operate. Well, and you've also, I mean, your first warehouse was your house, right? Right. We had a, a 2,000 square foot carriage house and uh, in the backyard, we had a, a storage shed that was maybe 150 square feet and we would package in the backyard and, um, you know, um, uh, store things in the shed. And then I got a, a storage unit at a, literally like a self-storage facility and had containers backing up to, to like a, you know, storage facility and unloading and throwing the driver $50 and saying, can you help me? I only have two hours. You know, it's kind of like those types of things. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of grit and determination um, around the, 
startup stories like this, it's you, when you're when you're playing with your own capital, it definitely makes you um, adhere, you know, take care of it a little bit more. It, uh, it really gives new meaning to the term bootstrapping it. It does. Yeah, right. Exactly. So um, I'm curious, as you start to grow, um, you start out, it's just your wife and you and you're doing all of those things. How do you decide when the time, and I'm always curious about this in terms of how companies grow and how you scale, how do you decide when the time is right, we need to add an employee, um, we need to get an office, what were some of the, um, the key milestone points that triggered those decisions for you? Yeah, I think one of the things that was interesting is uh, about a year in, we moved to, to Jacksonville, Florida, and I started kind of realizing that the first week we launched our website, I started getting phone calls. And this is at a time also, you know, a lot of luck is involved in these things, as I'm sure um, a lot of entrepreneurs talk about, you know, the, the luck and timing and, and the concept at, at the right point in the, the journey. But um, the ability to, to advertise online was just, it was much more cost effective to, to, to buy Google ads, to purchase keywords, to, um, you know, acquire customers was a fraction of the cost it is today. Uh, but we also moved into a larger market that allowed us to kind of learn more about supply chain and logistics and uh, warehousing and shipping and all these things. So um, that was a, a kind of uh, fortuitous uh, move that, that that we made there. But also, um, you know, the, <clears throat> the 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 phone started ringing and we started realizing that we actually had something here that, that people had a real interest in. And when we started acquiring customers like the New York Yankees or the New York Times or we're, we're furnishing these like large projects, Google and Facebook and headquarters like that. It was really a, uh, a time where we were, we were able to take a look and say, hey, we actually have a concept here that um, there's not a lot of risk around since we're kind of bootstrapping it because we, we do have a, a incredible customer base. What was, who was the first employee? What was the first position that you hired? Yeah, so, well, I, I would say this about two years in, uh, I started taking a salary, which uh, our accounting <laughs> accountant uh, was, you probably should pay yourself at some point. Probably a good uh, idea. But the first, yeah, the first person we actually hired um, a warehouse employee um, that helped uh, with the, the loading and unloading, and then uh, a salesperson uh, who's still with us today um, uh, that, that helped to kind of ease the, the, the workflow there. Um, but yeah, that, that would be a warehouse, warehouse work. And when did you make the decision to move out of your house and start to set up offices and bring in other employees? At what was there a, a, a dollar level? Was there a volume level? What was that uh, decision? Yeah, I think when we started, to? we started getting into, um, you know, obviously you can't manage. I mean, I was would would stay up till two or three o'clock in the morning and uh, respond to whatever I could, and then realize this isn't very professional to be responding to, <laughs> to customers uh, at these times. And but you, you know, I was trying to do whatever we could to, to make it work. Um, I think when we got to a couple million dollars in revenue, um, it was uh, obviously time to start looking at our kind of organization and figuring out where we needed to. And we hired fairly early on like the top end um, executive team. So, um, so, but yeah, I think when we started getting to a point where we, you know, couldn't be managed responsibly or um, in, the, in the best manner, we, we decided to, uh, to kind of open up an office and um, move out of the, move out of the home office. And that was maybe um, eight, eight or nine years ago. And I'm always curious, too, for entrepreneurs, 
Um, when you first start a business, obviously it's you and your wife, right? You can you know lean across the dining room table and go, hey, hey, and uh, honey, we need to do this today. We need to do this tomorrow. Or she says to you, you know, you can have that discussion very quickly. As you start to scale an organization, um, communication is one of the things that I find a lot of companies have a challenge with and starting to create structure. Um, how sure. did you how did you figure that structure out and how did you start to establish what your corporate culture was going to be and how you were going to communicate it to these new employees as you started to build them? Yeah, I think that's certainly a challenging thing as as we've grown and as, as companies grow. Um, on the culture side, I think, you know, in companies that are our size, which is we have about 40 people right now uh, across several different offices. So um, the culture really comes down from from me and 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 my co-founder. And I think that that really determines de defines, you know, the 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 ethics of the, the, the workplace environment and and. And that side of it, the, the communication piece is, is certainly challenging. We use a lot of tools to kind of allow, um, well, allow us to kind of share internal, internal um, information. But um, you know, it's important for us to continue to have you know all hands meetings, and we, you know, have uh, you know quarterly video conferencing where we can have like you know get, get togethers with the whole team and uh, communicate in that regard. But it's cer certainly challenging, I and mean, there's a lot of moving parts and. Um, you know, one of the things that that we pride ourselves on is obviously our you know customer service and keeping the customer focus, um, you know, as the number one priority. So, communicating around those issues is something we're always working on um, uh, optimizing. Speaking of customers, um, you you. You know, we kind of gloss over. It's like, you know, oh, we put up a website and then we had some customers and they just kind of showed up. And um, I, I'm certain that there was more intentionality to that and that there were some strategies and things that you did. Um, and customer acquisition, the cost of that today is just astronomical. And right, that seems to be the piece that hangs up um, a lot of companies in terms of the profitability piece. What were some of the things that you did to do, to uh, acquire customers? How did people learn about Industry West as you were getting started? I mean, I think it goes back to I mean, obviously, like I said, being being very fortunate and lucky to to be launching a business in a time where it was you know, e-commerce was. I mean, there were not a lot of pure play digital brands in in the furniture space in two thousand and nine. Um, I mean, now you have uh, a litany of, of of companies competing for the same. Uh, the same customers or similar customers. Um, you know, I think customer service has been like at the heart of like mentioning like what what we do. So no matter what, whether it's the warranty or um, uh, replacing a product or making sure it arrives on time or holding it for before a restaurant opening, like we we will do everything we possibly can to uh, to please customers. I mean, it's it's not uncommon for us to maybe a restaurant opens up and they they change their mind around the. the the design and they want to ship back a hundred pieces and we'll figure out a way to make it work for them to replace it with something else. Or, I mean, we will, we will do whatever we can that companies typically do not. Um, and that's allowed us to kind of increase our like lifetime value of customers. So people come back for that type of service. Um, and so when it might be $300 to acquire a customer that has, um, you know, an average order volume of $2,500, if, if we're able to show them that that we operate in a way that really does take care of customers uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that other companies do not, like they'll come back. And so that that order value goes from 2,500 to 10,000 to 20 to 30,000, even into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for some of our larger clients. So 
Um, so that's been a key part of it. And it's kind of just old fashioned, good customer service. I mean, there's, there's nothing more to it than that. And, um, we really pride ourselves on and making that kind of fanatical obsession around the business. Well, you also seem to have a, um, a very positive and affirmational, uh, philosophy. I, I have read other things in other places where, and I think there was a, a bar stool example, right? Where somebody placed an order with you that was much larger than you were prepared, but you said yes, and then figured it out. And that seems to kind of be a philosophical, um, underpinning that you, that you bring into the business which is say yes and figure it out. I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, do that. Um, and it's just part of, uh, I mean, for me, it's part of my DNA. And, I, and not not to be facetious about it or to say that, it, you know, something's not possible. I mean, if somebody wants to, to order a refrigerators, I mean, uh, we might try to figure <laughs> it out. I mean, who knows? But I mean, but but yeah, we do. Like we always, tr we always try to say yes and then um, be reasonable and try to figure it out. But I think that, um, we've created, a, you know, part of the culture that I mentioned coming down from, from me and, and Anne is, is certainly that, you know, our team says they, they figure out a way to say yes, to make things work. Um, and there's a lot of, um, self-starting mentality throughout the company that, that comes down from, from that mentality. How do, um, partnering with, with your wife is, it's not uncommon in the business. I'm always curious how you divide responsibilities, whether it's things that you have each have a kind of a, a respective interest in or whether it's sure. background skills. How do you kind of figure out who's going to handle what? Like who, who sure. lost the coin toss that you're talking to me today? And uh... <laughs> yeah, no. So I mean, that, that is a challenging thing. And I'm very, very blessed to um, to have uh, met, met my wife early and, and we have a, a, a wonderful uh, relationship and uh, we get along very well work, work together well I mean we do divide the responsibilities there has to be one area where um, people report to someone so I mean I definitely act as and am the CEO of the business and, and uh, make those decisions but she's a very intuitive individual and, and does really well around um, you know personnel and, and dealing with that but the other piece that I mean it's really she's been involved in is we, we did launch a, another brand that's more around um, accessories and home decor uh, a little over a year ago so that's taken up a lot of her time and um, is a very different uh, different operation that that uh, we've, we've piggybacked along the success of Industry West, but um, she's definitely managed that team and um, that different, it's a very different different business. Um, but yeah, but we, we, we divide things things out well, but um, we, we make it work. I also understand that you report to some pretty tough, I guess we could call them the board of directors. I've, I've read that even though you don't have investors, that psychologically you feel like you are responsible to the kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so in, in some ways, I mean, we've grown a lot and, you know, we're very busy and we travel a lot, but um, we, we, we joke around that because I mean, a lot of our team has, has children. And so um, what, what more is there to, to what we're doing than, than to figure out a way and an ability in life to spend more time with the ones we love. And so um, when it comes down to it, I mean, there's a, take a lot of joy in the fact that we're able to, to spend those those valuable years with, with our with our two girls uh, I, I hope they're a little easier than the average angel investor <laughs> you know um we've we've had the opportunity to to make a few investments over the years um in in the space and uh i've taken the attitude of trying to be uh pretty easy with uh, some of the other founders that we've been fortunate to meet um but uh but i, I think i think they're they're pretty easy they're they're pretty good <laughs> Now, um, you actually not too long ago um, 
expanded beyond your original concept, which was strictly e-commerce, opened up your first showroom in New York City, and now you have a second one coming in L.A. What made you decide that it was time to open physical spaces? Sure, sure. So uh, it's something we've been looking at, uh, and a lot of other brands have, have been kind of um, focusing on, on on doing this. I mean, and we touched on customer acquisition costs, and when you start looking at what it takes to um, to, to acquire a customer just digitally, it, it started to, to almost make sense to have a few really hyper-focused locations and on the, the right space. It's, it needs, it's as much advertising as anything else, but in terms of a, a new channel for us, it's been incredibly rewarding and successful in terms of, you know, somebody had seen the brand somewhere, they're walking down Crosby Street, they come in and all of a sudden they're spending sixty or seventy thousand dollars on their hotel project that someone had mentioned to them about industry west so it's you know a lot of, i've heard other ceos talk about like channel neutrality and i think we're just looking at it as, as a new new channel for us that um you know we, we obviously track uh, the revenue generated out of there and, and the attribution but it's um it's something where we just felt like we needed a, a new way to kind of get exposure and um we activated space around events and um and lots of other you know, design happenings. And so it's been, um, it's been a good move and we'll look to do it uh, beyond just uh, Los Angeles and New York as well uh, over the coming years. So yeah. tell me a little bit how you designed and utilize the space. You mentioned around design happenings and um, other kinds of events. Do you use it as a showroom? I mean, what, yes. what is um, the space and how does it function? Sure. So it's it's not a large space. I mean, obviously the the premium in real estate and in Soho, New York City is, is quite quite large. Um, it's about twenty seven hundred fifty square feet. So we do rotate collections out and introduce new collections in the space every twelve weeks or so. Um, we also have a sales team there of of eight uh, people working um, obviously on a daily basis. But we have a lot of you know meetings and client meetings there uh, on on a daily basis. But also like we like last week we had a um, a, a collaboration event with uh, Vision, which is a new color uh, matching app um, that's uh, recently launched in the last year. And so we had a, like a live Q&A podcast, or uh, I guess it was an Instagram live feed going, and we had another gentleman talk about, up there talking about video. So we've had live podcasts um, featured there. We've had, um, we did a collaboration with Spanner College Art and Design last year during jewelry week where their designers came in and it brought several thousand people into the space that week. So um, we've had other startups that have used it for pop-up shops and um, we've had uh, live supper clubs come in. And so it's just been really about um, engaging the, the community, but but also just featuring amazingly beautiful furniture and a, and a well-built and designed space and giving people a, another place to interact with um, others that might have the same interests and to see the, the product and, and, and it's in a beautiful light. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Furniture Today's On The Record, brought to you by Klausner Home Furnishings, a global leader in the manufacture, distribution, and marketing of a complete range of furniture and bedding solutions. Only Klausner brings you so much, delivers it so fast, and all on one truck. And now, for more insights from the experts, let's return to Bill and his guest. Were there some things that you learned from the New York space that you'll apply when the, in the LA space? Um, the, probably, I, I, 
probably a few. I think that sometimes there's a lot, lot. Um, there's been a lot written around like, you know, iPad shopping and, and interaction with technology within the space. Um, it doesn't seem like that's as big of a, um, of a has met had a big of an impact. We have the large screen where you can shop the website while you're in there or get on your iPad. People just want to talk to a, 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 a intelligent person around design and furniture and, and know that they can look at it and see it and touch it and feel it. And um, it's just really not much more than that. So having great people in the space with great products and the ability to, to, to get someone immediately is, uh, you know, it, it seems to be the, the most important thing. I mean, I think rotating out the, the collections uh, even more frequently is something we probably will look into doing. Um, and as we launch more collaborations with um, some independent designers in, over the coming year, we'll look to, um, you know, polish up and to tighten kind of um, how we feature content in digitally and, and other mediums, as well as what people see um, in the space. I mean, obviously, without having, you know, millions and millions of dollars of venture capital, you know, we have to, to do things more quickly and to, to engage with the data in a way that allows us to make decisions faster. Because um, we don't have the luxury of uh, of having you know oodles of oodles of cash sitting sitting somewhere, so um, so that that would be probably tightening up our content uh, across the channels and, and in space. What an ironic idea that humans want to interact with other humans. It's, isn't uh, that something else? <laughs> isn't it something? Doesn't that say something about where we're at today? That it is a unique concept for humans to interact with other humans and that they actually want that in a physical space. What a wonderful thing. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it is wonderful. And I and I hope that uh, and I don't want to say that we have a lot to do with that. But I mean, I do think that people are craving that. I mean, that they want real connection with with one another. And as spaces in society have um, have eroded slowly before our eyes and the options for us or the places for us to overlap with people that might not be exactly like us um, is certainly something that, um, that I think about a lot. And, you know, again, going back to some of the initial conversation here, getting, get, being in the business of, of creating spaces and helping people create beautiful spaces is, um, is a way that we can kind of um, engage in that, um, that space, yeah. that, that ability to do that. I'm curious about the intersection. I mean, you're both a D2C company and a lot of your business seems to be driven on the commercial side. What's the interaction like between those two segments of your business? Because usually people target one or the other and you seem to have developed them both kind of simultaneously and organically. So I'm curious about the interplay between those two different customer segments. It, it is something that makes us unique and that is a little bit different. And I think there's there's been a lot written and there's been a lot said around the differences in the segments. And I felt from very early on, we, we launched a website. I, I wanted accurate, beautiful photography, um, beautiful products and beautiful spaces. And um, I felt like that was the most important thing. And so it whether a consumer was attracted to that or whether it was somebody opening up a burger bar in Philadelphia that was attracted to that, I didn't think it mattered that much. What I found people really quickly becoming frustrated with was this lack of transparency around pricing models and availability. And so when we started getting phone calls in the first week of launching the site in 2009 and people needed 80 of these or 120 of these and we said, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. I thought, what is it about what we're doing that and it, it when i talked to early customers they said well you, you, you had availability you also told me how much it would cost me 
and you gave me pricing, and you gave me a quote immediately. And to this day, I think there are areas within furniture and decor space that are the B2B side that it's just hard to get, it's hard to buy product. Like, well, why should it be so difficult to transact? Um, and you hear a lot about uh, digital brands to, that are innovating in a lot of ways, removing friction. Um, I still think that there's a lot of value around that in the furniture space. I mean, the, the biggest area of friction, obviously, is the logistics piece because we're moving big products around a large geographic location. But um, I didn't think it mattered that much early on to be a D2C brand. I wasn't part of the Lexicon then, but or to be, you know, um, selling to businesses directly. So um, to this day, I mean, it's not uncommon for you know businesses to go online and check out without ever, ever talking to anybody because we make it pretty easy for them. Um, but it's also just as easy to, you know, for for you and Bill to go on and buy a, buy a sofa and get it shipped out uh, today. So um, we didn't think that there should have been as much segmentation from early on, and, and that's been part of, uh, I think, part of our success. I'd like to talk about the logistics uh, piece of it because that's really one of the things that for a long time insulated the brick-and-mortar furniture operation from the online piece. It's just very difficult to deliver a piece of furniture. Um, I'm guessing that you don't, given that you said you have about 40 employees, you don't have your own trucks. Um, you don't have your own delivery people going all over the country. So how do you manage logistics? Uh, I'm guessing you use 3PLs. Um, how do you make sure that they have the same focus and attention on customer service so that you're carrying that culture forward um, sure. through a, you know, through a vendor? Yeah, so if I were going back 10 years ago and, and had a little bit more of a you know, crystal ball, I would have never hired a, a 3PL. Um, and a few years ago, we did make the decision to insource kind of all of our, uh, our logistics and our warehousing and distribution center here in Jacksonville. Um, and so we do operate and run that. And, and that's our biggest facility in, in California. We do we use a third party. Um, and we have our own trucks here in in northeast florida that to do our deliveries uh, for this this marketplace um you know we're pretty you know and um my sissy uh, our, our chief operating officer is uh, amazingly disciplined around how that operation is run and so um we, we are uh doing a great job in terms of, of fulfilling that customer ex that part of the customer experience when it comes from from shipping out of out of our, our main distribution center here in florida but um, but I do think there's something lost around you know obviously the vertical integration and and of of that piece of of the fulfillment um, when you outsource it um, there's just not the level of attention to detail and um, you know it costs you something beyond uh, just the dollars. Mm -hmm. I've also heard you talk a lot about the importance of data. Obviously, being an internet-driven company, you have enormous amounts of information on. Uh, your customers, how they behave. A lot of companies have a lot of data, but the ability to sort through the noise and recognize what's actionable and what's just noise. How did you learn to deal with that? How do you how do you uh, manage that piece of the business? Yeah, that's a that's a challenge when you have limited resources, right? So um, we have a tremendous amount of data, and I mean, you hear. A lot of companies talk about their their tech stack and, and what they're built with and what they use to track and different tools they use to um, to measure the efficacy of marketing efforts and uh, all sales metrics. Um, we try to, as a 
executive team really focus on the ones that seem easy to kind of extract. Um, but it but it's certainly challenging. I mean, we we don't have uh, a a team of data scientists that are constantly analyzing all of it. So we try to make sure that we're focusing on the, the right reports, the right metrics that allow us to make um, effective decisions that can help us move the needle and, and um, support our customers in the best ways possible. But it is it is a challenge, especially um, when we don't have, uh, like I said, a, a team of a, of a dozen folks sitting there analyzing uh, all the metrics, which can, we did. Can you give me an example of uh, a, a kind of a metric that you look at that maybe you didn't realize is as important as it is, or you know that a couple of things that you look at specifically that are determinative for you? Um, you know, I, I'll tell you one we talked about this morning with, with um, my executive team around um, you know, one of the, the things we'll do for customers, it's not uncommon for us to uh, allow a customer to place an order and then we will hold their stock for them for a determined time. Um, we call it pending fulfillment. Um, and, you know, we started looking at how that affects our revenue. Uh, obviously, we want, to, we want to ship everything as quickly as we can to, to realize, um, to, to invoice it. And so we started creating a report and looking at the data around how that's affecting our um, our growth, um, you know, and it's in you know, pending fulfillment became something that's in the millions of dollars. And so how do we better both serve our customers because that is a service ad that allows us to close more sales, but also to um, get with our team and say, hey, we've had, how can we better speed up um, some of these these orders that we're, we're kind of holding? And so, you know, that's something we kind of extracted out, pulled it, and now we're kind of using it to go back in and say, we could actually invoice some of these faster than we are based around, you know, uh, uh, getting with our, our team and making sure that they're communicating uh, more efficiently and quickly with, with those customers to get, get product out the door. Hmm. Um, that's just fresh on my mind from, from this morning. So, uh, but, but yeah, those are, those are things that we're, we're constantly looking at, things like that. When you project, well, actually, before I get there, I'd like to talk about the profitability piece because when you're building the business the way you are and you are focused always on maintaining that profitability, my guess is that you have to make some difficult decisions and prioritize this and not that. How do you, do you have a, a philosophy, a strategy to say, you know, these are the things we want to focus on and these are the things we want to grow? And, you know, how do you prioritize? Um, where you want to invest when you put back into the business? That's a that's a great question, and uh, I I, uh, I wish I had a a, a well scripted answer for that. I, and I hate to say this because it's it's not a great answer, but I, I sometimes it just comes down to a gut feeling, Bill. And I I think sometimes when we think about things like opening the Soho Studio, it, it didn't probably make a lot of sense, but it felt like a good place to invest capital, and it just felt like it. The timing was right for it, and you know, I said, well, either, "There's no way we can track this completely. I wish we could, and we're just going to do it." And um, you know, it turns out that people actually do kind of like uh, interacting with products physically and being in a market where there's, you know, 18 million people within a 45-minute drive is it's probably a great place to be and um, a design center. So, I mean, those types of things kind of do come down to a little bit of of, of gut feeling. And I, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm not, we don't operate where we, we're looking at things so in such a minuscule way to maintain, um, you know, we're certainly not as lean as we could be. Um, that, that's a, a challenging thing in, in this industry, but, um, you know, we, we, we take a lot of 
a lot of risk around um, where we choose to do it. So whether it's a, you know, piloting a new ad spend with a, a digital, you know, media brand or working with an influencer. And, um, you know, we, we do these things all the time where it's, it's not uncommon to say, hey, there's a, you know, there's a development in New York and they want $50,000 for the product to feature in their penthouse. Um, you know, do we want to participate and get exposure out of that? We, yes, let's do it. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. Um, and then we kind of kind of go back and, and look at the forensics uh, after we're, we're done with whatever project might be and say, okay, these types of things really do work well for the brand. Um, we do see lift when it comes to this type of a partnership. Um, we don't say yes to everything. And I, I certainly don't, but I, we know what works for us. And um, uh, we try to, to look for opportunities to um, you know, find areas where there's going to be a, a obvious uh, obvious lift for for the company. You you just struck on something that I think uh, is so important in business. You say we don't say yes to everything, and I've heard so many business people say that it is incredibly important what you say no to. Um, do you have a, a philosophy around that? I, I mean, I, I have read, for example, Tim Ferriss. You know him. He's the, the four-hour workweek guy. Right. right. And, I mean, he says no to virtually everything. Right. He's a very long list of what you say no to. How do you figure out what you say no to? Um, well, I sound like I'm contra contradicting myself after earlier saying that. Well, I life is contradictory. Don't worry about <laughs> it. I mean, we, we yes, all live contradictory yes, lives, right? Yes to everything except for everything else. <laughs> uh, but, but, um. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of obvious ones where, you know, there's just not a good fit for maybe a partnership or, or something else. And we get contacted a lot by, you know, real estate teams that want us to kind of move in or do, do something. Or and early on, it was like we started working with other brands. Um, we we just it, it was very difficult. So like we would I would go to to these European trade shows and you know, Maison Angers or Salon de Longueville and you know, talk to brands and nobody wanted to work with a company that was 100% digital. So we, we were able to quickly kind of start working with, or, or over time, start acquiring a couple that we kind of developed a relationship with um, and felt like fit kind of our brand aesthetic mm -hmm. and uh, what our customers were kind of felt appealing. Um, and now it's almost, we almost all, we get contacted a lot by, by companies that want us to, to distribute their products. And we almost always say no, just because um, there's there there's just too much investment on our part to get things out there in the marketplace and raise awareness and get people to transact around um, you know the, the the product ranges. But um, so we, we almost always say no when it comes to those partnerships, unless it's something really specific. Um, but in general, I mean, we we try I try to look at everything and just kind of you know where where could this help? Where where do we have gaps and where we are omitting things that, that this could help to to um to fill in um you know influencers and those types of partnerships i mean those the, the good ones are amazing they really move the needle um the bad ones are just a waste of time there's, there's a lot of that i don't know when, when we've reached peak influencer but uh, it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon but, no it um, doesn't now the new trend seems to be micro influencers yeah i don't is that just uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what that means, but um, I think it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it does. I mean, it's like, you know, people who have very small followings, but in a in a particular area. Right. So um, actually, we had someone speak at our leadership conference who has one store in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And so he looks for 
local inf- so for example there's a, a local weatherman who has a really popular following so he'll team up with him um, on something right so a micro influencer i guess is someone who yeah. can help you in a particular market in a particular segment sure. in a particular I think you have niche a fit for a product like that and that makes a lot of sense to me and th- those are the kind of things that I, I do would take a look at and say hey this is this could be a good fit i think you know one of one of the challenges is always um, around around influencing is is certainly you know how how much engagement uh, influence have with their followers, their following, and um, you know we found the most success with with those that are obviously very well known in the space, the you know, you know the Emily Hendersons of the world and and, and folks like that. Mm-hmm. When you look at the tra- trajectory of the business going forward. Um, I mean, I, my general question is, where do you see it going? But I'm, I'm curious how far out you look, right? So if I were to say, where do you see it going in five years, in 10 years, which of those is more likely to be the timeline that you're looking at? And how far out do you try to strategize about where you want to go? Sure. I mean, I think we we look out um, for the next, uh, you know, one to two years in terms of what we're strategizing. Um, we're we're really focused this last year or two on um, our own kind of OEM collections and ranges. Um, you know, I think in the age of Amazon and Wayfair um, and companies that just have seemingly unlimited resources to throw at different things, we really try to focus heavily on um, uh, our merchandising component. And so whether that's the way that we do it uh, online or and whatever medium we choose to to try to gain exposure through, we really do look at at that being a different component. I mean, like the collections we introduce, the, the product range that we're, um, we're we're constantly working on, you know, the, the the stuff that we manufacture that we produce that's under the Industry West brand has you know such higher margins than working with other brands. Um, we've we've almost moved away from from really you know partnering with other furniture companies. Uh, and furniture brands just because there's just so much more value in, in our ability to vertically integrate around design, designing our product and, and sourcing their own materials. Um, so we're really hyper-focused on, on our own collections and our own you know product development uh, in the last year. And then going into the future, we're going to continue going on that path. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, we, we, we try to take uh, you know a 24 month window around uh, major projects that we're working on I mean right now we're looking at um, you know uh, now that we're at the point where it makes sense to kind of open additional distribution centers and start uh, our own final mile delivery uh, in a couple of key markets um, you know those are those are major projects that I think will have a, a high impact on kind of our customers experience uh, with the, the the delivery piece I mean um, Getting furniture delivered is, is is a challenging you know part of part of being in this industry. So um, so we're looking to kind of control as much of that as we can with with the resources we have. It's funny as much as one of the things that that we see, um, we get actually a lot of uh, customer engagement when we write about different furniture stores or furniture operations very often particularly in social media you'll get stories right consumers will reach out to you and they'll say well these guys did this or that. and it's it's so fascinating to see how much that final mile experience can either make or break somebody's perception of a furniture experience right a really great final mile experience is actually something that seems to be um, a draw to return the customer and a really bad final mile experience can undo so much 
additional, so much uh, great work that comes before it. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it goes down to what I talked about earlier in terms of the customer service piece and just taking great care of, of customers across all parts of the journey and all those interactions. I mean, when I've had, I recently had something delivered to my house and uh, from a competitor and um, they had outsourced their um, the delivery piece, but the one of the, the gentlemen who, who helped to install the bed um, kind of did a couple of things that were just kind of very memorable in terms of just like looking out for things that I wouldn't have expected. And so those are things that, how do you value that? How do you, how do you value that um, ability for somebody to have come in with a smile and, and clean up after themselves in a way that's beyond what you might expect? Because when you run the models on these types of things, like it, it's very difficult to say that it's going to add to to the to that profitability piece that we that we're so covets. But um, there's something about that that is just it's it's intangible, but it's it's more valuable than um, and I think oftentimes we're analyzing the numbers uh, that we realize. Um, you know that that human interaction in a way that's um, that's that's real and authentic. Mm-hmm. Well. So, I I, uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time here. We've spent a good bit of time talking about the business, and I really look forward to continuing to follow the Industry West growth path. My guest this week has been Jordan England, CEO of Industry West, and uh, hopefully we'll get you to come back and join us maybe in 24 months when you've got uh, a whole bunch of new things <laughs> I, to talk about. I would love that. I could talk about this stuff all day long, um, but I really appreciate you having me on, Bill. and. Uh, I look forward to engaging again in the future. Absolutely. If, if you're ever, we would love to have you come speak at one of our events. We have a, an innovation summit that we're launching in September in Minneapolis or even at our leadership conference. Um, if you and Anne would like to come, we'd love to have you uh, and come speak to our audience. Absolutely love to do that. Um, we'll, we'll get in touch. Good. I'll follow up with Nora and maybe we can, uh, can make that happen. Sounds great, Bill. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Have a wonderful Bye. day. Bye-bye.